Today on Ag News Daily. Then, you know, we'll sit down and look at those options. So just to give a very basic example, um, you know, if, if someone's interested in a cost share program where we take those acres where they're revenue negative. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here joined by Ashton Carr, another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Ashton, I tell you what, we had some big news in Iowa yesterday. President Trump made an appearance and in Des Moines at the Des Moines International Airport. Had I known, I probably would have attempted to visit that rally, but uh, I found out pretty last minute, I'm not going to lie. I feel like that's how stuff goes these days, maybe just be last minute. That's that's how I'm hearing a lot of things these days as well. I don't know, maybe it's just us. Maybe. I would have liked to think that, you know, if I, that I would be kind of more in the know than some people being that we were kind of in the news industry, but I was slow uh, to that news story. But like I said, President Trump was in Des Moines, of course, doing mostly campaigning for his the upcoming election. But he also spent quite a bit of time speaking about rural America and COVID and ethanol and a bunch of different issues. He told Iowans that he thinks farmers are making more money under his aid programs than they would selling their crops. But he did forewarn of an economic collapse if his rival, of course, uh, Democrat Joe Biden, is elected. He also spoke, as I mentioned, about ethanol, COVID-19 cases, et cetera, et cetera. But we also saw a new poll released Wednesday by voters in Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin surveyed and showed that Trump was trailing in Wisconsin and Minnesota, but leading in Iowa. So we also saw that he, they focused really on, you know, rural states, this group that put together the poll, which was RG Strategies, and they're focusing really on rural America to see if uh, Trump was connecting better on rural issues or if President or excuse me, vice former vice president Joe Biden was. And um, so it's interesting to see kind of, you know, how things are shifting really day to day before this upcoming election. You know, Delaney, I have a little bit of news that also kind of ties into that, I would suppose. A lawsuit was recently filed in Fresno, California. It was filed yesterday. And this lawsuit is basically saying that the Trump administration is trying to cut farm wages. Agricultural guest workers will predictably see lower wages because of the USDA's decision to cancel a semi-annual survey that is used to calculate their pay. The lawsuit, which was filed by the United Farm Workers Union and the UFW Foundation, asked the court to order the USDA to carry out the October survey, so it's generally given out in October, or usually, not generally, but usually given in October to do it in November so that the Labor Department can use them in setting minimum wages for the country's 250,000 or more H-2A guest workers. UFW President Teresa Romero said pay rates for domestic farm workers were sure to fall if what's known as the adverse effect wage rate for guest workers is to be cut. 
and the cancellation of the farm labor survey, which has been conducted for more than 100 years, amounted to, quote, an end run around changing the H-2A regulations in a cruel effort to slash farm wages. And that was said by Bruce Goldstein, who is the head of farm worker justice. And when the USDA was asked about canceling the survey, a spokeswoman said that the USDA has determined the public can access other data points for the data collected in the agricultural labor survey. Yes. So did they really give a reason why they decided not to continue releasing this data? That was the one thing I don't think I ever found an answer to. Not a very specific answer. From what I have gathered, it's pretty general, not not general I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but it, they they didn't really give a specific reason, just that folks can find this data elsewhere. But I'm not really sure. It, it doesn't sound like they've been given giving out where they can find this information or how they can get to it. So I think it's a little bit confusing, to say the least. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that one, Ashton. But one thing that's not confusing is China's inflation rate. So they have hit a 19-month low as of September. We saw Chinese officials, consu- or excuse me, China's official consumer price index rose 1.7% in September compared to a year earlier. And they said that China is doing relatively well. They said prices of goods that a typical Chinese consumer buys are rising at a modest rate, uh, but well within the government's expectations. And we also saw the inflation rate as of September hit the lowest percentage since February of 2019. So that would be, I suppose, somewhat friendly that China is back on back in back on track, you know, to do business with the United States. They are also moving quickly past their pork crisis. And we saw pork prices as of September were 25 and a half cents or per cent higher than a year ago. So continuing to see China, China's economy really rebuild themselves, even with COVID-19 kind of looming out there still as a potential global crisis. Well, Delaney, speaking of COVID-19, the 102nd American Farm Bureau Convention has been switched over to virtual as we continue to see things go online because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I wanted to touch on this just a little bit and let our listeners know about the convention going online, just because, you know, it's being held in 2021, though it's early 2021 and in January, you know, we're not even to 2021 yet, and we're already seeing things, you know, continue to be canceled due to the pandemic. But the organization says the decision was made after the San Diego Convention Center, where the meeting was to take place, canceled all events through January because of COVID-19 concerns. The Bureau's online convention will be held January 10th through the 13th, and registration will open later this year, and it will be free to all attendees. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but definitely going to have to follow up on how they are going virtual. That will be interesting. That's always a big one for folks to get to. So I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we see other trade shows like National Cattlemen's Convention and Commodity Classic turning virtual. It sounds like that's going to be the trend this year. Certainly, Delaney. But I have just one more bit of news here, and it's concerning weather trends. The Brownfield Ag Meteorologist says the La Nina weather pattern could help replenish soil moisture in parts of the Midwest this winter. 
And he also says that early snowfall in some areas could also help. And they are anticipating above average precipitation and cooler temperatures because of the La Nina weather pattern. And I've been seeing a couple things about this weather pattern coming into play with, you know, wrapping up harvest and folks starting to think about the 2021 planting season. So I think we might have to have one of our meteorologist guests back on the show next week to talk us through this weather pattern. That is a great idea, Ash, and I couldn't agree more. I know, you know, there's still some areas dealing with some drought. I was reading a story earlier talking about winter wheat acres having drought issues, drought concerns. And I tell you what, here in central Iowa, it's been pretty dry lately. We see a lot of really dusty roads. We've had a lot of wind issues when it comes to, I've seen a lot of soybean dust flying around and it's just dry in uh, this part of the country. And I think farmers probably need a little bit of a break. You know, I know they like to get in there and get it done, but when you're going three, four weeks strong without having any rain delays or a break, that can be pretty tough on you. It certainly can be, Delaney, and it's actually been pretty dry here as well. I know we live in, in different environments, but just the other day, or earlier this week, I saw a ton of dust when I was driving around town because, you know, folks are in the cotton fields right now, and it's just windy in Lubbock to begin with. So we're definitely kind of seeing the same things, it sounds like. Yes, I think that you are uh, correct on that one. But I had just one other news story here. Uh, Pilgrim's Pride, as I mentioned earlier this week, has agreed to pay a $110.5 million fine to resolve their alleged price-fixing uh, schemes. But this has actually boosted their stocks, which I found a little surprising. They say investors reacted very positively to the news that Pilgrim's Pride has agreed to go ahead and make this payout. And their stocks were boosted by nearly 90 cents a share or about 5.7% after news of the agreement broke early Wednesday. So the share price is still down almost 50% from the beginning of the year with COVID-19 and other things. But this does mean that no other charges can be brought against the company moving forward. So they're kind of washing their hands and done with that issue, so to speak. Well, isn't the saying all press is good press? Mm, I guess that might be <laughs> the case here. I don't know. I don't know, Ashton, but yeah, so that's a, a wrap on the news for today. The other big thing is uh, the corn and soybean markets continue to push higher. This is the first time, and I think, I don't even want to know how, I, you know, a year-ish that uh, corn has broke above $4. We closed to a new contract high today in the corn markets. I'm pulling a soybean chart here. I think that that was not quite a new contract high, but we are pushing near those contract high levels set in the November contract. But I don't know, Ashton, today's a good day to talk markets. What do you say? Well, I'm excited to hear about it, Delaney. Let's hop into it. Well, like I said, December corn pushing up to new highs today with the December contract adding seven and a half cents to close at 404. The March up five and three quarters to close at 408 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, not quite to new contract highs yet, but they are pushing closer as the November contract added six and three quarters cents to close at 1063. The January added five and a half to close at 1062 and three quarters. Wheat had big moves today, rallying, I'm sure, on 
news of continued drought and production issues in other parts of the country. The December contract added 21 and three quarter cent to close at 618 and a half. The March up 19 to close at 619 and three quarters. In the livestock bits, mixed trade today in the cattle complexes. The October live cattle shed 60 cents to close at 107.77. The December cut 72 and a half to close at 109.55. Feeder cattle also mixed today as the October contract added Added 55 cents to close at 138.92. November adding 15 to end at 136.47. In January, shedding $1.22 to close at 132.10. In the lean hog pits, December contract adding $1.45 to close at 69.87. The February up 32 to close at 71.42 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. October adding two pennies today to close at 21.32. November up 35 to close at 20.80. Ashton, without further ado, remind us who we're talking to for today's interview. Today, we're talking precision agriculture and conservation solutions with Pheasants Forever. Well, as we said earlier today, we are having on Emily Spoliar, who is the Precision Ag and Conservation Specialist for Pheasants Forever, located in North Dakota. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. So before we really get into the nitty gritty of Pheasants Forever. Why don't you tell our listeners and Delaney and I a little bit more about what you do in your role with the organization? Yep. Uh, so if you don't know, Pheasants Forever is a nonprofit organization. Um, we're dedicated to the conservation of pheasants, quail, and other wildlife through habitat improvement, public awareness, education, land management policies, and programs. Uh, so in my role specifically, I am a precision ag and conservation specialist. So what that means is I get to work with farmers to take a look at their operations, specifically their profitability per acre, figure out acres where maybe they're not as profitable as they would like to be, and see if we can find alternative solutions that are conservation-minded uh, that would be a better fit for them and also provide benefits for wildlife, soil health, water quality, um, different things like that. So um, I I love what I get to do because it's it's genuinely just helping people be more successful. And while I'm doing that, I'm also helping wildlife and, and uh, you know, specifically upland birds in my area. So it's just a really cool combination of getting to work with farmers, work with conservation, and um, has a lot of really awesome benefits. So Emily, you're located in North Dakota. Are you working with farmers who are in just the the North Dakota area? Are you working with folks, you know, further out than that or or does the organization work specifically with with certain folks in certain states? I guess my my question because I'm I'm kind of rambling here, but my question really is who are you guys serving or or where are you guys serving? Yeah, so I don't know how much you know about um, pheasants or, or um, pheasants forever, but kind of the, the heart of pheasant country is the Midwest. And so that's where a lot of our efforts have been focused currently is um, in that Midwest region. It's also, you know, where the large part of our membership base is. So we sit right at about 149,000 members. Um, we've got chapters in most states in the U.S., um, 
but the core range of that is is in the Midwest. So right now we've got precision ag and conservation specialists in uh, North Dakota, Georgia, Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, um, and South Dakota, uh, along with the couple of us here in North Dakota. Um, so that's kind of where our precision ag efforts have been focused so far, but that is continuously expanding um, here within the next few months. We anticipate having uh, quite a few more precision ag and conservation specialists join the team. Um, along with that, we have farm bill biologists across the country um, and, and other affiliated employees. And then of course, all of our chapter members who also do a lot of, of habitat work and, and um, conservation efforts throughout the country. Emily, I want to talk a little bit more about the precision ag connection, because when I think about pheasants and, you know, hunting and all of that stuff, that doesn't automatically scream out in my mind that there's a precision ag connection there. Can you go into depth for us a little bit more on that? Yes. So um, I know you you follow me on Twitter and just recently I was able to post a series of pictures that I've been excited to take since the first day I started this job. And it's a picture of a yield map. And then at the end of the series, it's a picture of a rooster pheasant in my hand standing in those red acres that we identified on the yield map. So to kind of start from the beginning, you know, I'll sit down with a, with a farmer. We'll talk about areas where they are historically unprofitable. Um, figure out what local programs are available if that's something they're interested in. Not everyone wants to enroll in some type of program, um, but if that's a factor that we need to look at because of of the uh, additional profitability opportunities, then, you know, we'll sit down and look at those options. So just to give a very basic example, um, you know, if, if someone's interested in a cost share program where we take those acres where they're revenue negative and roll it into a perennial cover program where they're getting cost share. So, you know, we're helping with with part of that establishment. Um, they're still able to use the, those acres for, you know, a lot of producers here in North Dakota, especially have cattle and crops. So they're still able to use that for haying or for grazing um, outside of the primary nesting season. Um, and then on top of that, you know, they're not pouring those input costs into those acres that are not giving them a return. So especially here in North Dakota, we deal with a lot of salinity issues. So acres of the field that you know you're you're not getting a return on, but you're still going through it with seed, you're still spraying it, you're still fertilizing it, and it's not making you any money. It's costing you money. It's bringing the average yield of your field down. You know, it's just not doing anything good for you, and it's not doing anything good for wildlife or soil health either. So um, trying to identify those places, put the habitat on the ground, um, and then in doing that, that helps bolster wildlife populations, especially, especially pheasants. Um, in, those, in those really high quality grass plantings, you're able to provide broodering habitat, you're able to provide nesting cover. Um, there's just a ton of really great things you can do that helps them while also helping the bottom line of your farming operation. So Emily, how do you guys collect the data that you do? You're talking about, you know, the red and trying to turn it green and, and, and all that good stuff. So how do you guys collect that data so you can provide that technical support to farmers? So there's there's a huge array of different 
programs that farmers are already using with their operations. So, uh, you know, whether it's the John Deere Ops Center or Climate Field View, um, and we try to, as best we can, work with the platform that they're currently using. So in some cases, you know, it works out to where I, I have an account that they can just share that information with me on their account. And then I can log in on my computer and, and look at that yield data. Um, in other scenarios, it's just sitting down at a kitchen table and they pull up their yield maps on their computer and we go through and, and kind of map out a plan. Um, it, it's very situational, you know, it just depends on the operation. Some operations will just print out some yield maps, um, then we'll kind of go through it. But, you know, I try, number one, I, you know, we like to have the data component because it just tells a really clear story, you know, mostly black and white of what's going on in that field. Um, and then on top of that, you know, just talking to the, to the operator and, getting an understanding of the issues that they're seeing in the field. Um, and really a combination of that is what we use to then proceed with, with future plans or, you know, potential plans that we could implement in those areas. So everything we do is hundred percent producer led. It's all voluntary. I'm not out there trying to twist anyone's arm to get them to sign up for any particular program or anything. Um, you know, it's, it's not a, a new concept to look at unproductive acres and figure out alternative solutions for them. You know, CRP has been around for a long time, but I think it is with the use of precision ag technology where you're able to look at your operation on an acre by acre basis versus whole field. Um, then you can really get into the nitty gritty and figure out, you know, it's, it's not always 40 acre grass plantings that we're doing. Sometimes it's just a couple acres but those couple acres can make a pretty significant difference in the overall profitability of your fields. Absolutely. It certainly can. Emily, you've mentioned quite a few different resources and tools and programs that you guys implement. If we have listeners that are just curious and finding out more information, where can they go to find out that information? So a lot of the programs um, other than, you know, of course, CRP are, very um, state specific and even regionally within those states, uh, there's there's different funding opportunities. So the best place to start is um, our Pheasants Forever website. You can find our precision ag information under pheasantsforever.org uh, slash precision ag. Um, there's also, if there's not a precision ag specialist near you, there's more than likely a biologist around, a pheasants forever biologist. Um, and a lot of our biologists are able to do very similar uh, type of work that we are, where, you know, we look at those yield maps, we look at the profitability, and we make decisions based on what makes the most sense economically and agronomically for your farms. Um, so just, just on our website, it's a good place to start. There's a lot of examples on there where it shows the change in profitability on a field. You know, you can look at those maps and the way the yield average has changed and the way the profitability has changed. And then the specific new practice that was implemented. Um, so that's a good place to start. And then of course, you know, FSA and NRCS offices have, uh, have a lot of great resources as well. But if you're looking to work specifically with Pheasants Forever, um, our website is a, is a great resource to start that process. 
Well, again, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I'm excited to see what's around me that's incorporating Pheasants Forever into, into their into their farm or, or what have you. But again, Emily, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I wouldn't be able to get to do all the awesome work I do without the incredible chapters and members we have across the country and all of our partners. And um, so again, thank you. I, I know, like I said earlier, a lot of our outreach events lately have um, kind of been postponed. So being able to get on virtual stuff like this is a great help in uh, reaching a new audience. So thank you. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. On older vehicles or farm equipment with doors, keep in mind that there are small drain holes at the bottom. These are used to allow water to escape that passed by the door glass. It is common for these drains over time to get plugged with debris and for the door to collect water. This causes the door to rust from the inside out and attacks the window mechanism and door locks. The moisture also impacts any electrical devices such as a power window motor or electric door lock components. If the drain plugs suddenly, the door will fill with water. The most detrimental condition, though, is when there is just enough blockage to keep things damp. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, again, a big thank you to Emily from Pheasants Forever to coming on the podcast today to to talk about precision agriculture and conservation and really how they use that within the Pheasants Forever organization. It's definitely something very interesting. And I didn't even think about that when thinking about, you know, pheasants or or quail or, or that kind of stuff, but definitely very interesting. Yes, I always forget about that as well, but there are a lot of perks, I suppose you could say, to including things like that into an operation, and they uh, definitely play their own role in agriculture. Absolutely, Delaney, but we're always talking about different roles of agriculture here on the podcast. In fact, tomorrow we're having a farmer on to talk about harvest, so be sure to tune into that episode at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.